Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And this is Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, we're back with Shiloh Brooks for some more Xenophon. What's up, Shiloh? Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, we are on book six today, uh, continuing uh, our study of the education of Cyrus. And Shiloh's going to give us a brief overview of book six, and Jeff's going to ask an opening question. Sure. So book six, it's a difficult book um, for a number of reasons, and I can't wait to dive into it with you guys. So in chapter one of book six, um, Cyrus uh, and the allies give their reasons for wanting to continue to campaign. Um, there's a Cyaxares uh, is allowed to broach the question, but then the allies each weigh in on, on why we should continue, and Cyrus gives an account of why they should continue to campaign. The other big thing that happens, um, perhaps the biggest thing in chapter one, is that Erasmus, who is the young man who was placed uh, in the close proximity to Panthea, the most beautiful woman in all of Asia, uh, he was supposed to guard her and had told Cyrus that um, love was voluntary, that he, did, he wouldn't fall in love with her, uh, that that was just ridiculous. Well, as it turns out, he fell in love with her. And not only does he fall in love with her, he falls so deeply in love with her that he's willing to use violence to get her to submit to him. Um, and so things get pretty dark. Uh, Cyrus gets wind of this, um, sends his own lover, by the way, a man named Artabazus, uh, back to Erasmus to say, look, man, you got to cut it out. Like, this is not going to work. You can't be violent. Um, uh, you know, Erasmus feels horrible because this woman, after all, was supposed to be the reward of Cyrus. Erasmus goes to Cyrus and says, hey, I feel really bad. I'm, I'm a ridiculous human being. Um, and Cyrus says, well, you know, you could make it up to me. Why don't you uh, pretend to defect, be a spy, a CIA agent, the Cyrus Intelligence Agency, and infiltrate the other side? Um, and so he does. And so that's what happens in um, uh, uh, chapter one is that Erasmus now is going to defect and sow disinformation. He's going to go over to the Assyrians and sow disinformation. Chapter two, um, Abradatis comes home, the wife, uh, sorry, the husband of Panthea, and is so grateful to Cyrus um, for not harming his wife. We should talk about his gratitude. Um, Cyrus uh, sends additional intelligence missions. The Indians come back and Cyrus tells the Indians, hey, would you go tell, I've got a guy over there telling uh, the Assyrians false information already. Would you go tell him some false information too? And so um, that happens in chapter two and Cyrus continues to prepare his men. Um, there's a very interesting speech also by Chrysanthus in that chapter. Um, in chapter three, Erasmus returns home from his intelligence mission, uh, gives Cyrus the down low on what's going on over with the Assyrians um, and is, is rewarded and congratulated for, for uh, being a spy. Uh, Abradatis continues his association with Cyrus's military, Panthea's husband. He feels so indebted to Cyrus that he, he volunteers um, at the end of the book to um, make a new sort of chariot and ride in it. And we should talk about these chariots. Cyrus has a, a, some technical innovations in this chapter. He devises a new kind of chariot, new kinds of siege engines. Um, and then in chapter four, uh, a very beautiful scene between Panthea and her husband, where her husband is getting ready to go out to battle. She has had her jewels crushed up into armor to adorn him. 
Um, she's arming him. She's putting on the armor on him. It's almost like a scene from Gladiator or something. And he's getting ready to roll out to the battle. Um, and everyone is just in awe about how beautiful the two of them are. Yeah, thanks, Shiloh. So uh, in order to ask my question, I wanted to remind you guys of a couple things we've said in previous pods that are still on my mind and I think would be a follow-up. One thing uh, came up a few pods ago, um, and I think I used this image to illustrate it, that if a human being puts our head on the chopping block and then decides not to kill us, we hate that human being or envious or angry at that human being. But if a god puts a head on the chopping block and then decides not to cut it off, we're grateful. Right? So we had this difference between how we react to mercy from a more powerful human versus a more powerful God. And it seems like gods get our gratitude. Um, that was something we suggested. And then Shiloh also suggested that uh, one of the things we should be thinking about the education of Cyrus, and one of the ways we should be understanding that phrase, is that Cyrus uh, knows something about sexual arrows, but doesn't really understand political arrows very well. Um, he knows that sexual eros is dangerous. He says that it's involuntary. Uh, he thinks it's useful, and he puts it to in this book. Um, but he might not understand um, that there's a political eros that has similar characteristics. And so uh, with those two things in mind, I wanted to get us to start at least with these two episodes of gratitude in this book. Um, as Shiloh mentioned, Erasmus is grateful for the opportunity to go on this spying mission for Cyrus because he's been caught out behaving very badly toward Panthea. And also Panthea and Abradatis, her husband, are grateful um, to Cyrus for uh, his having spared Panthea. And I wondered where that gratitude comes from and whether it makes sense to us. And in particular, I wonder whether it comes from sexual eros or from political eros. So that's kind of my question. What's the difference between sexual eros and political eros? Which ones are going on uh, in relation to Panthea? And do they explain, do those forms of eros explain the gratitude that seems to come out of these interactions? Yeah, I think I'd love to add two other kind of um, erotic lines or just kind of brief episodes that might help tease this out a little bit more. Uh, one is actually going back to the last paragraph in book five uh, before we get to book six. And it's this weird thing. So he, Cyrus kind of sets up this elaborate dinner for Xerxes to basically make sure that he's not in the tent with Cyrus. And it's, it's commented by Xenophon that Cyaxerxes, but right before that paragraph, that Cyaxerxes is a little bit surprised that Cyrus doesn't want to have dinner with him. But Cyrus sets up like a big grand dinner for Cyaxerxes to basically get him out of the way. And then he brings his kind of closest advisors in. And this is parenthetical, like 44 to 48 in book five. And Cyrus basically charges his closest allies. And I, I, I think these are all just Persians. I think these are kind of his closest uh, Persian officers. And he says that he wants them to go convince the allies to stay with him. That it's, that it's their responsibility to go talk to the allies to keep them around. And Cyrus says uh, at the end of it, um, let this be your, let this then be your concern. 
I will try to make it my concern that when the soldiers deliberate about campaigning further, that they have all that they require to the extent I am able to provide it. And that's, that's the you know, end scene right there. And then what happens uh, later, you know, the beginning of chapter one in book six, is all the allies kind of show up. And apparently what Cyrus's lieutenants have been telling them is that Cyrus is leaving that they have chosen to do, to tell them that in order to get them to stay. And so I'm wondering how much this is affecting kind of the quote unquote education of Cyrus, that Cyrus, I think on some level is saying like, promise them whatever you need to promise them and I will provide it. And what the lieutenants, the Persian lieutenants kind of come up with is, well, the thing they want is you more than anything. And, and I, I wonder if Cyrus is a little, he, he yes ands his way right through that, you know, in this next, in the, in the opening of chapter one. But I think he learns something very important about his position in the army. And I think that, and again, I mentioned in the last part, I haven't read this before, so I don't know what's coming. But there's another interesting line in chapter two at parenthetical four which is as they're kind of getting ready to go to war against the Assyrian, um, he, uh, Xenophon writes about Cyrus, he also stirred up mutual strife among his friends in order that they would each show themselves most well-armed, best at writing, best with the spear, best in, archer, best in archery, and most eager for labor. And so it's, I, I'm wondering if Cyrus is kind of figuring out after this episode with the allies and his lieutenants going out and saying like Cyrus is leaving that he has figured out that he is the object of their desire and it's becoming more real for him. And now he's kind of embracing that. And I, I wonder how much that's going to influence kind of things down the line that now Cyrus as the beloved is the real prize for everyone involved. Well, you know, they, um, it's interesting you mentioned this because they joke with him at the very beginning of this book and it's kind of painful uh, book six, chapter one, uh, it, it just happens very quickly, but about precisely the thing that you say, um, uh, at the bottom of, of the very first page of book six of chapter one, um, there's a little joke, and um, it, it's, it's mentioned in passing that Cyrus's father has sent for him. This ought to be really troubling. I mean, Cambyses knows and he's mad, so get out of the way. But then at the top of the next page, Cyrus jokes around and says, wait, you, you told people this? You, wait, you brought this up? And then the, the next guy says, well, yes, by Zeus, for I see you're a bit too desirous of being looked on admiringly as you circulate among the Persians and of showing your father how you've accomplished each particular. Uh, Cyrus said, do you not desire to go back home? No, by Zeus, nor will I be going back. I will be general and stay until I make Adatus here master of the Assyrian. And then Xenophon says, so they said such things joking with each other, yet in earnest. Um, and so it, it does seem that there's self-consciousness among the army, that Cyrus is the object of their desires and they're prodding him. It's no longer, look at great Cyrus. There are people now who are like, this guy is a total beloved. Like he's a total, you know, pushover. So Anyway, I think what you say is true, both for Cyrus's own benefit, but also people are onto him now. Well, and one other thing about that is, and maybe I missed it in book five, but we don't know that that's true, right? 
do we get an actual report that's from Cambesis, you know, a messenger from Cambesis saying, hey, come back? No, this is just not that I'm aware. This is just a rumor that's been that's been circulated and Cyrus didn't want it to come out. And now it's come out. It's maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But that's kind of what I'm wondering is, you know, we saw Cyrus flat out lie in the last book, right? When he said that he had uh, told Cyaxerxes to uh, what, what was the lie that he told him? I'm blanking on it now, but that I feel like Cyaxerxes says something. And then Cyrus is like, yeah, I told him to say that. When it oh bright, yeah, the lie was um, you ordered your men to come with me. Yeah, you ordered your men to come with me. So no, I'm didn't. wondering. No, yeah, he didn't. So <laughs> I'm wondering if Cyrus not only is learning that he can create um, that that the love that by being positioning himself as the beloved, he can get more out of the 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 men that are working for him. And I'm also wondering if he's learning that lying is another way to get what you want. And, you know, because I think that there's a possibility that, you know, Histaspis and maybe the other lieutenants just came up with this story and said, oh, yeah, no, he's got to go because his dad told him to come back. And this is the first Cyrus is hearing of this, you know, lie that his lieutenants have told the allies. And Cyrus is just going for it. He's just going with it. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you weren't supposed to tell anybody about that. Uh, so... I'm, I'm, I, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously this isn't in the text that he's lying or anything like that, but it's also not in the text that he's not lying. So I'm wondering how much that's informing us in kind of the education of Cyrus. Yeah, I was really struck by how sophisticated this joking yet in earnest banter is at the beginning of book six. And by sophisticated, what I mean is that uh, it looks like the practice of ironic speech is actually alive and well in Cyrus's army right? Hystaspis is teasing Cyrus by saying something that's manifestly false about Cyrus. Cyrus does not want chiefly to go back to Persia and brag in front of his father about all the great things that he's done, right? But by saying the thing that's opposite of what's true, if Cyrus goes back to Persia, he's going to lose everything that he's gained, right? And the question of the relation to his father is going to become very problematic, Right. By saying the opposite of that, Histaspus puts his finger on this question of the need to keep going, right? The need to stay away from Persia, and therefore the need uh, for Cyrus to keep providing to his, uh, his lovers what they want from him, right? So yeah, I like this suggestion a lot, Brian. I think this is uh, what you're driving at, that Cyrus is learning and he's making up to some extent some of the defects that Shiloh was pointing out in the connection with uh, uh, you know, his understanding of political arrows in the previous podcast. And his army is doing, uh, his officers are doing part of the teaching. And I think you know, that they're coming kind of thick and fast too, right? The, the lies or the potential lies. Like right after this, at parenthetical 13, Cyrus says, why then did I bid Cyaxerxes introduce a discussion about dissolving the army? Well, Cyaxerxes just walks out and says, hey, should we go home? It doesn't ask Cyrus, and we don't have any inclination that Cyrus told him to ask this or anything else. And Cyrus, just shooting from the hip, is like, well, I mean, why do you think I had him ask that question? You know. And so there's this lovely little power balance thing that they're doing between Cyaxerxes and Cyrus without calling each other out or, you know, saying specifically, I'm in charge, no, you're in charge, you know, kind of things. They're very subtly kind of wrestling 
for a kind of top position. And then, you know, it's also super interesting in parenthetical 13, you know, I, I brought it up a little bit in the last pod about Cyrus being the anti-Agamemnon. And we see the speech from Cyrus um, right after he mentions this question about Cyaxerxes. And he says, be well assured that it was because I fear the future for I had see advancing upon us rivals against whom if we will campaign like this, we will not be able to fight. And he's just got this kind of woe is me speech here, which reminded me a lot about Agamemnon, you know, weeping during the, the war council in the Iliad and saying like, you know, the gods are against me. Like, we've got to give up, we've got to go home. And then all the kind of captains in the Iliad are like, no, screw that man, we got to fight. Um, but Cyrus like kind of pulls it off in this speech uh, because he turns the, the conversation uh, around kind of halfway through. And so there's, I think maybe this is pointing to us again as going like um, Cyrus is the anti-Agamemnon because he can pull off saying, we're definitely not going to win, <laughs> you know, and, but he does it himself. He does it before the captains even can jump in and say, no, 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 we need to keep fighting. Like he tees it up in a very deft way. So I just wanted to throw that point out just cause I, again, I feel like Xenophon to some way is kind of structuring this as a commentary, but I could be extrapolating a little bit too far. No, I think extrapolation is exactly what Xenophon's asking us to do. And the cherry on this particular Sunday is, of course, when Cyrus marches out into Assyria to try and uh, hold territory and eventually confront the Assyrian army. Um, uh, Cyaxares remains behind with a third of the Median force. So he, uh, the result of this uh, wrestling is he's pinned and he's left behind, right? Done. So yeah, yeah, good observations, I think. There's one, um, I, I like very much the, the theme you guys are discussing uh, or the question about whether and to what degree Cyrus understands or is beginning to understand the connection between political love and erotic love. And <clears throat> I, think I, I think that Cyrus doesn't understand it maybe as well as Brian says he does. And I don't know where you stand on it, Jeff, but I think the way to, to, to crack this egg is to look at some of the things, Jeff, that you mentioned at the beginning uh, in your question. And one thing that occurs to me is one of the more important passages in the reading. Um, I think we should look at the two places where Panthea and Abrodotus express their gratitude. But before that, there's the place where Erasmus goes to Cyrus and says, I'm, I'm in love with her. And I see that you were right. This happens on page 183, parenthetical 41. Um, Erasmus is commenting on the character of his love and the word philosophizing appears. And that, uh, this is the first time I think in the book, because previously the philosopher with Tigranes uh, and that whole scene was called a wise man. The word philosophy wasn't used, but here, Erasmus says this thing uh, when reflecting on the nature of his love for Panthea, and he's surprised that it was in fact involuntary. He says, uh, I clearly have two souls. I've now concluded this while philosophizing with the unjust sophist love. If indeed the soul is one, it is not at the same time both good and bad, nor does it love both noble and shameful deeds at the same time, and at the same time both wish and not wish to do the same things. But it is clear that there are two souls. And whenever the good one conquers, it does what is noble. But whenever the vile one, it undertakes what is shameful. Now, since it took you as an ally, the good soul conquers, and very much so. 
Cyrus says nothing in response to this, but all right, well, if you've decided to go on the mission, here's what you have to do. Like he doesn't, it's, so I don't know if Cyrus is like, oh no, he's on to me, which would indicate some wisdom on Cyrus's part, or whether this just flies over Cyrus's head and he's like, what, whatever, man, (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about with all this. We got, we got stuff we got to do with the army. So I just want to briefly discuss, I don't fully understand what he's saying here, why he says it, why Xenophon uses the word philosophy here, what the connection to Socratic erotic teaching might be. Um, and I'm just wondering if either of you two have a, any account of what Xenophon's getting at here. Well, yeah, this, this is tricky for me too. I have some suspicions and I can kind of lay out uh, the direction I I think might be best to head. Um, he doesn't say, oh, Cyrus, I discovered you were right. And, you know, I thought this was voluntary, and now I know it's simply involuntary. Instead, he's got this more complicated account, right, that looks like the soul is composed of, uh, you could say, the soul is like a chariot. It's got two horses, right, a good one and a bad one. And then he, uh, Araspus, is the charioteer. And when he is controlling or trying to control the two horses, it looks like the black horse, the bad horse, the one that wants shameful things, uh, gets away with a lot. For example, he might threaten to rape somebody because he's so overcome with her beauty. And he realizes that's shameful. But if you swap Erasmus for Cyrus as the charioteer, it looks like he's suggesting, well, then I'm going to do noble things. I'm going to stay away from these more shameful behaviors and instead, I'm going to do uh, what is um, praiseworthy or noble. So it looks like uh, it's always involuntary for someone, according to his account, the experience of Eros. Either one part of him or another part of him feels like it's compelled. And the question is just which one does the compelling and which one is compelled. So there I'd say um, it's not clear that Cyrus is on the same page with Erasmus here. Um, and I do suspect that that part of this goes over Cyrus's head, or it's not of concern to him. Okay. Okay, that makes some sense to me. You you say it's not involuntary on Erasmus's part that he doesn't say Cyrus, you were right. It's involuntary. Um, yeah. But I mean, he does fall in love with the woman, and he does say, "I didn't. I'm not going to fall in love with the woman." And so, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I, I think I agree with that, right? He has an experience of compulsion, but one of his uh, responses to that experience is to say, yeah, but the thing that was compelled is only part of me. The other part that did the compelling, that's also me. I have two souls, right? Something right. like that. Yeah, so he, he, uh, he kind of um, cuts, uh, splits the difference between the voluntary and involuntary account in the argument that they had before and said, well, kind of both things are true because we have these two souls in us. Um, Now, I'll just mention this kooky theory I have um, that might shed a little bit of light on uh, whether it's entirely lost on Cyrus. Um, if, If the suggestion is that if Cyrus were um, in control of the chariot, then the good horse would always win, right? In other words, the part of the soul that wants uh, to behave nobly and not shamefully always be in control, then maybe there's a way of modifying the chariot so that that's more uh, regularly the outcome. 
And oddly enough, in uh, book six, where we have a bunch of military reforms that are necessary, Brian mentioned this speech, Cyrus has to make a lot of changes to the structure of his military in order to pursue the campaign against the Assyrian. Um, one of the things that's mentioned is a modification of chariot technology. So uh, it's, it's a, a slightly loony idea, but there might be something in it that there's a connection between Cyrus's military reforms and something he understands about what Erasmus is saying to him. Um, I don't know, we need to follow up on this right now, because uh, I think focusing on uh, what Erasmus is saying is good uh, at the, for the time being. But uh, there might be a connection between these two otherwise very disparate parts of this book. Yeah, I'm wondering, I, I definitely want to get to the chariot technology thing, but I'm wondering, you know, the, the passage with Abradatus follows very quickly on the passage from Erasmus, right? Um, like 44 is basically like, thus Erasmus went out, and then by 46, you know, Abradatus is on his way back. So what is, what is the importance in the kind of narrative structure of the fact that like Erasmus needs to, to like exit stage left and then Abradatus needs to like enter stage left? So Panthea is under the impression that Cyrus wants her and reporting uh, Erasmus' behavior before he threatens rape would set Erasmus and Cyrus against one another. Uh, once she reports it after he threatens rape, she fears that uh, she has deprived Cyrus of somebody he cares about, a valuable uh, friend and officer. And so she thinks that because Cyrus is defending her virtue out of a concern for her, she owes him. And I think that, and so she, she says, well, I'm gonna send for my husband who's this great guy and he's gonna be able to do services for you to show our gratitude for your not taking advantage of me the way you could have despite wanting to, right? So that's her kind of presupposition. So gratitude is generated out of this situation with Erasmus. I don't think she knows the truth about Cyrus's relation uh, to her or to Erasmus. In particular, one important detail, detail she doesn't know, Cyrus says, if you can seduce her rather than forcing her, go for it. In other yeah. words, he does not mean to you know, keep her inviolate or keep her for her husband as she thinks he intended to do. That's right. And she, she's under, um, as you already put it, I'm just reinforcing your point, a number of how do I say, misimpressions about what's going on. She says that, for example, uh, Erasmus defected. He didn't defect. There's this other thing going on. Um, you know, she, she tells her husband, we owe Cyrus, because of his piety and moderation, um, we owe him, and you owe him piety and moderation yourself. When, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Cyrus is totally impious, impious in his dealings and uh, somewhat immoderate, uh, it seems to me, as you say, he's saying, if you can take her, take her, you know, kind of, that's not moderate at all. And so she's under the inverse impression. And one of the things that always strikes me when I read this is um, the, the way in which Xenophon juxtaposes this web of horrible lies that Panthea is under um, next to uh, 
the beauty of Abradatus and Panthea when they're together. So in, in, in um, chapter four, uh, she's putting his armor on him and they're both beautiful. Um, and he says, I want to be a man worthy of a wife like Panthea and a friend worthy of Cyrus. And it's just like beautiful moment of honor and piety and loyalty and nobility. And all these people are apparently looking on and they, the eunuchs are looking on and they, she's so beautiful. They can't stop looking at her. The sight of him is very beautiful, but people were not able to look at him until Panthea went away. And there's just this, everyone is enraptured by this couple, you know, and their moral uh, excellence and their physical excellence. Juxtaposed against that is the fact that this couple in all of their moral beauty and physical beauty are totally uh, being hoodwinked by Cyrus. And this is why I think that um, Cyrus doesn't understand or is not fully uh, aware of what he's doing to them. In other words, he, he's playing with fire and he's not moved by them, but everyone else is moved by them. And this indicates some defect in him. Like he should, he, you know, a, a, a person of, of some moral decency and consistency would say, whoa, you know, this is like, you guys are, this, you guys are a little bit misinformed here. Let me clear this up. But <laughs> he doesn't do that. He's, he continues on with it. And he's like, oh, this is amazing. Let's use this. This guy's going to go on the front lines in a chariot that's got side strapped to the side of it. That's going to go great, right? That, that'll go really well. And so it's just that the, all I mean to say here is that Xenophon is really, in my view, making Cyrus look like a monster, a total monster, because everyone sees the beauty of these people and you want to love them and you want to, I want to look at them and say, what beautiful lovers. And yet I'm like, oh guys, I'm so, you're, you're in for bad situation because Cyrus has misled you and this is going to get ugly. You see what I mean? And that shows a great insensitivity on his part. He's not I'm, the reader. I think I'm really glad that you guys pointed out the, the line about um, Cyrus saying that if you can seduce her, she's yours, but you can't force her. Because I think that this might help us understand Jeff's question about political eros versus a sexual eros. Because so far, I mean, if we look at Cyrus's kind of campaign so far, it seems to be, it seems to have mostly been seduction. You know, like he really hasn't forced himself on uh, really any of these uh, enemies, right? Or potential allies. He, you know, the Assyrian is the one that kind of crossed into the Median territory, right? And so he's just trying to push him back. And he's seduced all of these allies and created this empire through seduction, not really through like physically invading and saying like, this is mine now, right? He's kind of brought people in to his army, to his empire. And so I'm wondering how much, it's, it's a question, something like, you know, how much of Cyrus's empire is people falling in love with him versus him conquering and forcing himself on these other peoples? Yeah, it's, it's hard um, even for a military commander to exert force or to impose necessity directly on people all the time, right? You need some people to cooperate willingly, right? Or what seems to be willingly. And so seduction seems like it's an indispensable 
part of the commander's arsenal, right? For every Tigranes or Tigranes's father, the Armenian, who you can put in a position of necessity and say, there's nothing you can do now. You have to let those people go uh, and leave them behind you or have them follow you and think that you're safe around them, right? So you have to seduce them. And that seduction must be something like uh, hope for a future good, a hope for a future good for which you're willing to barter uh, many present goods and give them to Cyrus, right? And the thought that you'll get something back in return in the future. And I guess the question, as with any seduction, is, is the thing you're going to get ultimately worth it in return for the thing that you give up now, right? Are you going to get anything ultimately uh, that can compensate or be even better than the thing you're giving up now? Um, now, I do have one thought that might be a qualified defense of Cyrus and maybe mitigate his monstrosity a little bit, right? So I think it's something like right now what we've got is a picture of a human being who uh, doesn't really feel sexual arrows, but knows that it's uh, dangerous and says, I'm just going to stay away from that stuff. And then he knows he needs something like political arrows, and he kind of ham-handedly makes use of it. Um, but he, he doesn't understand it very well, and he doesn't understand its proximity to or resemblance to the sexual eros that he thinks he's staying away from. That's the picture I have so far. And I just wanted to have us look at um, what happens. Uh, let's see here. This is uh, Book 6, Chapter 1, and it's uh, after Parenthetical 31. Uh, and this is where uh, we hear what's happening with Eraspus and Panthea. Eraspus has fallen in love with her, and Cyrus learns about this after Eraspus uh, threatens to force her. Uh, let's see, if you look at uh, 34, maybe this is the place to read. Uh, when he, Cyrus, heard, he laughed at the one who had professed to be stronger than love. He laughed at Eraspus. And then he sent Artabazus back with the woman's eunuch and bade him to tell him not to use violence with such a woman. But he said that if he were able to persuade her, he would not prevent it. Artabazus went to Araspus and reviled him, calling the woman a sacred trust and telling him of his impiety, injustice, and incontinence. Araspus consequently cried many painful tears, was downcast with shame, and had all but perished from the fear that he would suffer at Cyrus's hands. The thing that strikes me about this, in addition to um, the kind of um, monstrosity of Cyrus saying, oh, well, if you can seduce her rather than forcing her, then she's all yours, is that Cyrus actually didn't single-handedly procure the response from Araspus that turns him into a worthwhile spy. Artabazus did it. Um, and he did it by uh, making more severe what Cyrus told him to tell um, Erasmus, right? He turned it into a matter of impiety, injustice, and immoderation. And I'm wondering whether this it doesn't exactly put the finger on what Cyrus doesn't understand. He could have gotten a lot more out of Erasmus than what he asked for, and Artabazus knew it. Artabazus knew it because he's a lover of Cyrus. Right, but Cyrus himself is not a lover of anything. And I think it's also interesting that Artabazus is the one that delivers the message in, the, in coming back to that line that I read uh, in chapter two about Cyrus stirring up mutual strife among his allies, right? 
because Erasmus is one of Cyrus's closest uh, kind of lieutenants. But Artabazus, as we remember, the Median, right, that that wanted to kiss him uh, back in like book one. So we have these kind of competing lovers for Cyrus. Cyrus may or may not know this at a you know cognitive level, but maybe on a gut level that these two people are both competing for my love. And so let's see what happens when I send Artabazus to Erasmus. Uh, and Artabazus, just as you point out, Jeff, makes it much more severe for Erasmus because now he has the power to push Erasmus away from Cyrus to make Erasmus fear Cyrus more than love him and thereby securing kind of a higher position in the pecking order of, you know, who Cyrus might love or who is competing for Cyrus's love. Jeff, why do you say um, that Cyrus could have gotten more out of Erasmus? What more could he have gotten? I mean, he, he sends him on a, a death mission. I mean, he doesn't die, but he sends him over to tell a lie and spend days with, time with the other side. And then um, Erasmus comes back and is um, everyone is stunned. And uh, they sh all shake his right hand and all these sorts of things. And he's they're all very impressed with him and they're all celebrating him and these kinds of things. So it seems to me that, um, and this is of course the ultimate enemy, the Assyrians. This is the one that we have to mislead and if we don't, we might lose. And so he gets an awful lot out of him. And, and just with respect to the Artabazus thing, it simply occurs to me that Cyrus is smart enough to, to know that Artabazus is a beloved. Um, and so he sends him to venerate beloveds. And he says, don't you understand how sacred beloveds are? You don't understand that? And Artabasis, of course, he sees himself in this way for Cyrus. So he's going to speak especially um, passionately. This is the same man that Cyrus sent out to the Medeans to say, to venerate himself when he said, oh, you can go with this guy. I'm going to go with him. He's really great. So Cyrus relies on this man every time he needs somebody um, to... Uh, vindicate him and just you know make him look nice but uh, let's go back jeff to the to what he could have gotten more out of erasmus what what could he have done yeah what i'm thinking of here is not so much that there was more that erasmus could have done than he did in fact but that if artabazus had simply faithfully reported what cyrus said to tell erasmus then i think he would have gotten much less in terms of shame and consequent gratitude from Erasmus. And so while I think it makes some sense to me that Cyrus could have predicted that Artabazus would make uh, the charge more grave, because as Brian points out, uh, this isn't the way Brian said it, but you know he politicizes the charge. He makes it more severe by making its political character clear. Impiety, injustice, immoderation. Right. So maybe Cyrus knew that Artabazus was going to do that. And, you know, it's attributed to Cyrus anyway. So maybe he's fine with that. But then why not do it directly? Right. There's no advantage, I think, to using Artabazus as the intermediary here, unless Cyrus isn't quite on top of the power he's got his hands on here. And so Artabazus um, aggravates the charge. Cyrus realizes what happens and immediately says, oh yeah, I can use this and gets the oh. tremendous amount that uh, you point out out of Erasmus. I see, whereas my interpretation was, Cyrus knows exactly what Artabazus will say given that Artabazus is in love with him, that right. he will make it a moral issue. Right, 
Yeah. Right. And maybe just one more thing in this whole uh, knot, and then we can turn to the um, uh, Abradatus and Panthea uh, connection. But uh, the other thing is, I suspect that Erasmus is the closest thing that Cyrus has uh, to somebody that Cyrus loves. Erasmus is also mentioned in book one, although not by name. He's the guy that uh, Cyrus gives the Median robe to as Cyrus is leaving Media. And uh, I think it said there's something like, uh, it's because Cyrus particularly favors him. And so that to me speaks somewhat to Cyrus's monstrous character. The closest thing he has to a beloved is the exact guy that he throws in the lion's den, as it were, by making him guard the most beautiful woman in Asia, yeah. right? And he certainly gets him off the plate as a potential object of love by embroiling him in this, and that clears the way to using him. Yeah, and my sense is just uh, to come back and, and just reiterate what I said before, that Cyrus wants us to see the ugliness, or Xenophon wants us to see the ugliness of Cyrus, that there's something ugly there. And in order to bring that ugliness out, he gives us all of these um, quiet indicators, but the loudest indicator and where you said you wanted to move on to is the beauty of the, of the virtue of these two other people who are everywhere in this book. Um, and so he takes an ugly man, Cyrus, and juxtaposes him to a be two beautifully, morally beautiful and physically beautiful people and says, solve this puzzle. So let's yeah. turn to them. Yeah, yeah. So um, can I ask this question then? And I'm thinking about um, the exchange regarding the jewels and the armor. So this is going to be uh, now in chapter four. Um, and if we're uh, following along in the text, it's something like uh, uh, parenthetical two in chapter four. So page 198. Um, I wonder in this discussion of the armor, how sexual and how political their eros for one another is. And what I'm hooking that onto is it seems that they love one another in part because they're beautiful and they love one another in part because other people find them beautiful. Is that the difference between uh, sexual and political love? So the former would be sexual, the latter political. Yeah. 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 Um, that the political love looks and then looks around to see who else is looking, if I can put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the system boundary that you would draw in kind of sexual love is just between, you know, two people is, is something like that. But the system boundary, there is no system boundary around political love. Political love is all about acquisition and greater and greater acquisition. So you need to have people be able to come into that relationship. Um, that there is kind of, or, or that maybe a, a, a vast uh, hunger for political love, like knows no boundary, the boundary continues to expand. Whereas a pure kind of sexual erotic love uh, is about just two people. Is it something like that you're saying, Joe? Yeah, I like that as a starting position. Now, we might want to make the argument that sexual love is expansive, right? And so it, it never can really hold together with each looking into the other's eyes or something like that. There's always then a question, well, do other people also agree? Um, but I thought it was a good uh, starting position just because they have this exchange where 
um, uh, Abradatus asks um, Panthea, surely my wife, you did not have this armor made for me by breaking up your own jewels, did you? And it looks like he's worried that she might have made herself less beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And you wonder whether uh, he thinks the jewels are necessary to her beauty, right? That her beauty needs to be abetted by signs of wealth, for example, uh, just like his uh, military beauty, if I can put it that way, needs to be uh, abetted with a purple cape that might really be a hindrance on the battlefield, <laughs> not to mention a huge scarlet you know, plume and so on. I sense, Jeff, your, uh, your Rousseauian uh, nature coming out here. Isn't there a place in the second discourse where Rousseau talks about the moment in the history of man when adornments become a thing and the youths begin to adorn themselves and this is kind of also the beginning of a certain sort of moral corruption and the same would be true of mirrors because you can see what other people must see whereas before there were mirrors you don't know you know you don't know what you look like yeah yeah i I hear rousseau in what you say and in the first discourse he says something like the the purpose of adornment is only to hide some defect yeah yeah What do we make of that line, though, guys, um, that we're taking a look at where um, Abradatus says, surely, my wife, you did not have this armor made for me by breaking up your own jewels, did you? And she says, no, by Zeus, at least not my most precious one, for you will be my great jewel if you appear also to others as you do to me. Like, that seems to be kind of what you're saying, Jeff, about Cyrus, right? That, That he is attracting more people to seducing more people basically by seducing more people. And so is, is, is Panthea kind of setting up Abradatus to do the same thing that she's like, I'm making you beautiful so that other people will realize that you're beautiful. Yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing I'm wondering about that. However, um, exemplary their sexual arrows for one another might be it looks like it has a strong component of display right of concern with how others might see it and it it might be again i I don't want to be so rousseauian as to insist that this is a degeneration of sexual arrows but it looks to me like it's a encroachment at least on the territory of what we've been calling political arrows and it might be that um panthea is a kind of parallel to cyrus Right. In the sense that she also is um, a risky person to be around uh, because she uh, ends up putting people in dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. And you would you say in your judgment that this because I'm interested in what Xenophon is teaching us here. Is he yeah. saying that um, the nature of love as such is political. In other words, one can't, I mean, with the Rousseauian thing, it almost seems, you know, it almost seems like, well, you could do it another way, but you don't because you're corrupt. Like you, you know, this is morally a problem, but you could, you could be better. Whereas it seems to me that Xenophon is pointing out these two things are go hand in hand, that love as such is both personally sexual and publicly political as it were, and that that is not avoidable. Um, or very difficult, perhaps impossible. I mean, we could think about the case of Socrates. Maybe he, you know, got thought his way out of the box or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I'm just curious what you think Xenophon is, is trying to teach. Yeah, I'd want to drag Tigranes and his wife in here because that's another case where there's a, a very beautiful sentiment professed 
by the wife for Tigranes, right? Um, as a result of the risks he runs for her. And there it looks like it doesn't bleed further into the political in the terrible way that I guess we'll find out next episode, uh, Panthea and Abradatis' relationship does. But that even that's political, right? Because I mean, maybe you've, you, this is what you're saying is that she saw, Tigranes' wife saw him do something for her in what is literally a court. Cyrus was court, sort of holding a court case and he was like, I'm yeah, gonna kill your good. dad and I'm gonna kill your, you see what I mean? And, that, and then she's like, oh man, you are a hot man, Tigranes. Like, thank you for that. And so there's, you know, th this whole, he performs well in the public uh, arena and she's like turned on by this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, that's good, that's good. I, I'm inclined to agree that uh, in both cases, the sexual love we see has a political dimension, but in one, the political dimension seems to explode it. And in the other, I don't recall anything further happening. Uh, maybe we have to find out what happens to Tigranes. Yeah. And this would also indicate, um, I mentioned last time that Gadadis wants to bring his mother along on the campaign. And then there's this one, there's a one moment, uh, uh, one of the people Cyrus brings along, it's their custom to bring the women and the wives along because it, makes the men fight harder and these kinds of things. This is all, I don't know if you recall these examples, but they fit mm -hmm. with what you say. Yeah, good. I, I want to I come back real quick because I've been kind of on some lower level of my brain, been working on the thing that you mentioned, Jeff, about uh, Phaedrus and the, and the two horses, the dark horse and the light horse. And you kind of mentioned it in passing that um, you thought that with, um, uh, Erasmus, that this was some kind of commentary on Cyrus being the uh, charioteer and that the commentary about building the chariot later mm -hmm. on when he's in, they're getting into the technical side of protecting the chariot mm -hmm. uh, the, or the charioteer as, as, a, as an innovation in war is... Is that setting us up in some way to think about if Cyrus is you know, perfectly moral, perfectly pious, um, has a perfect understanding of, of philosophy, then he could totally be the charioteer and it would be for the betterment of who is ever souls he is, he is wrestling. But if Cyrus demonstrates that he is impious, or that he's unphilosophical, in unphilosophical, that's not a word, um, then he's going to basically run that chariot off a cliff. Yeah, is, that's, is, yeah, that's is where that I'm something headed. Kind of, yeah, okay. Yeah, here, here's the thought, uh, and I offer this up to any listener who wants to do a better job on it than I have or than we can in the time remains, but... Uh, the innovation regarding the chariot is to turn the chariot from an instrument of rescue to an offensive weapon or a purely offensive weapon, right? Previously, the chariot had two good fighters on it. One fighter would get off and fight. The other fighter's job was to rescue that fighter and take him away. But after the innovation, there's only one person on the chariot and the chariot itself is the weapon. It just plunges into the enemy with these blades on it everywhere, right? It chops them up and it's armored. And so my thought is something like this. Eros, when it has both a sexual and a political aspect, is kind of an escape device. 
you go a certain direction, you're willing to fight, but there's always something ready to take you away, right? To save you for another day because you have this private um, satisfaction as well. And Cyrus's thought is, I don't want two reasons on that chariot, one warlike and one dedicated to escaping war. I want just one. I want to turn this chariot into a kind of suicide device, right? And uh, that would be a way of weaponizing arrows by trying to uh, uh, leech the um, sexual aspect out of it as much as possible. That's just the thought. Can you tie this to the two souls statement? In other words, is Cyrus um, trying to jettison one of the souls or how does this work? Yeah, that's what I thought, that uh, having one human being on it would be equivalent to jettisoning, jettisoning one of the souls or making sure that the soul uh, that's willing only to do the noble thing always wins, uh, even at the cost of your life. Right. And I think that there's also something in the fact that they armor the horses, right? So now now both of those horses are armed for war. They're 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 armored against attack and so that they would both feel more invulnerable yeah. than if they went in, you know, completely unarmed. So I, th and I think that there's, you know, there's something that happens. We talked a little bit about this with the Persian cavalry, right? When you go from infantry to cavalry, you feel more invulnerable. Uh, so maybe there's something to that where both the, the, the dark desires and the pure desires, because they are, uh, armored against attack, right? That they, that they will not feel the uh, feedback in the system of, no, you shouldn't be doing this because they have armor on them, will embolden them to do more than, you, than would happen under natural circumstances if they could feel pain, if, if someone could inflict pain upon them. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we're actually a little bit over time. So I, I usually don't get the last word, which is good because most of the things I say don't make a lot of sense. So if you guys have any parting shots for our listeners before we wrap up. Uh, I was just going to say, if what you say is true, Jeff, about the chariot um, and Cyrus wanting to jettison the soul um, and keep it such that only the, no the one that wants to do the noble for no reward <clears throat> remains. This is a tremendous contradiction uh, and tremendous tension with what he does to the army because he does the opposite to the army. He wants them to be rewarded, but here he seems to see the value of not being rewarded. Right. And I don't know that this is that he's aware um, as and we might see this in fact next time. I don't know that he's quite aware of what he's doing psychologically to the army, as I've said many times. And I don't know that he's quite aware psychologically of what he's doing here either. And so this is again, another, I think, moment of ignorance for Cyrus. Right, right. And as you imply, Shiloh, we're on a cliff yet again, maybe the last cliff of the book. Next episode, we get to see how Abradatus and Panthea reap the reward for their gratitude. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, to be continued. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh, for another great episode. Thank you. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, combatandclassics.org listener. Uh, you can check out all of our back catalog there. You can also subscribe to our email newsletter and uh, you can also check us out on all the socials. So uh, thanks, fellas. And uh, we'll see everybody next week.